Exodus 12.5. And Exodus 12.5 says, Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male in the first year, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. This, of course, is the lamb that was sacrificed on Pesach. Uh, the blood was uh, applied to the doorpost. Now, let me ask you a question, Rabbi Michael Skovac. If, oddly enough, if I had decided to circumcise my lamb, circumcise would that have been without lamb? Yeah, if I had, for whatever reason I decide I'm going to circumcise my lamb, would that be a, a lamb without blemish? <laughs> I see where you're going with this, because well, because but, I think well, Paul Paul refers to circumcision as mutilation. Uh, I think it's in Philippians. Well, if I if I had, I mean, let's be let's be a bit clearer. If I had whipped my lamb, could I? I mean, is that a lamb without blemish? Right. If you whipped it, if you put a crown of thorns on its head, if you stuck crown a spear in its side, if you beat it, you know, it? mercilessly, you beat it if you couldn't use it, right? It, yeah, th- that's a good point. That you know, Jewish law in terms of an unblemished animal was quite strict. You know, they had to t- actually take the lamb for four days and separate it and sort of keep it away from everything to make sure it doesn't become blemished. And even a nick on the animal, any kind of a scratch or a nick, would render it blemished. Um, you know, blemish doesn't mean in the Bible that someone takes a, a big three-gallon pail of paint and throws it on the animal. Blemishes in the Bible refer to normally some kind of a physical marring and it could be mm-hmm. uh, you know a cut a nick a scratch it couldn't be used and so uh, it's very difficult to say that Jesus is the unblemished lamb when you know he had a pretty rough treatment before he finally dies and your point about circumcision is is quite good because as I mentioned Paul in the book of I think Philippians refers to the circumcision as mutilation mm. um, so someone that's mutilated you couldn't call them without blemish um, now they're they're citing, of course, First Peter chapter one verse nineteen. Uh, I'm just going to read from eighteen because it says, "Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold." I've, have you ever seen gold corrupt? I don't have much gold in my hand. I don't know. I've never seen gold corrode. Anyway, moving on. Now, when it, when it came to redeeming, uh, usually silver was used, right? I mean, this is uh, we find this in the Torah. Yes. But but according to Peter, this this is uh, aimless conduct by tradition of the fathers. But he goes on to say, with uh, we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So obviously he's speaking metaphorically, but you know this is <laughs> this is in, in reality this is just not the case. Yeah, again the 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 formula that we saw is very important here. That if you had picked up the Bible, you know, two hundred years before the Common Era. You know, in the time of the Maccabees, or if you picked up the Bible in the time of Jeremiah, and you were to read this passage in Exodus, would you really have thought that this verse, which speaks about, you know, the lamb that was brought as a sacrifice, not really a sacrifice, it was just brought to to slaughter the lamb and take the blood and wipe it on the doorposts, mm. um, would you have thought that this is telling us about the coming of the Messiah? Oh, and yeah. even if you would, for some strange reason, maybe you took too much drugs that day, but <laughs> how would that help you know who the Messiah would be? Meaning that, again, the, the, the real problem is that it's not really a, a passage about the Messiah, and even if it were, it wouldn't really point to anyone in particular. Mm. Um, it, it's sort of useless. It doesn't really, you know, get off the ground in so many mm. ways. So the real question here, which is the question that has to be asked for each one of these 365, is, is this passage in Exodus, in truth, really a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah? 
Mm-hmm. Or is it just something that when Christians look back on the Bible, they're able to say, oh, we can say that this somehow has some parallels to Jesus. I mm. mean, that's not how a trial works. In a, in a trial, you want to examine the evidence and see it points to a particular direction. And I don't think that it's possible in reading Exodus 12 to say that it's very clear that this is evidence which describes who the Messiah will be. Well, they've got a few more uh, stabs at uh, Exodus chapter 12, and the next one, number 22, apparently is found in Exodus 12:13. It says, the blood of the lamb saves Romans' wrath. Now, I don't understand where they're going here. They're citing Romans 3, 8. I don't understand. They, they seem to be thinking that uh, the blood of the lamb saved them from uh, the wrath of the Romans. But if you go to Romans 1, 18, I think it is, it's very, it's very clearly talking about the wrath of God. Nevertheless, how is this in any way a messianic prophecy? I'd well, think. what's interesting, by the way, is that th- this uh, sacrifice in Exodus 12 wasn't an uh, all-purpose salvation you know, to save the, the entire world or even the entire Jewish people. The only people that were endangered at that time were the firstborn males. Sure. Um, you know, the angel of death was going to come to, you know, this plague, the last of the ten plagues, was going to kill the firstborn males. Um, so, the putting the blood on the doorpost was not to redeem or save every single person. It was just basically to um, save the firstborn. And again, you know, this is a passage, if you were to sit down with a Bible a hundred years before Christianity, you would not have imagined at all that this was something that had to do with the Messiah. It's interesting, by the way, also that, you know, the lamb here uh, was actually uh, venerated and worshipped um, by, by the Egyptians, which is what Amun Christians Ra. do. Christians do that with Jesus. They, they, they do exactly. They worship the lamb, but God didn't tell us to worship the lamb. God actually told us to slaughter the lamb, mm. and that's what the Jews did, that that, you know, that part of what is going on here, you know, is that this is not just a arbitrary symbol that God chose to use, meaning that if God wanted us to put some kind of a symbol on our doorposts, you know, as a way to identify the house of people who, you know, should not be killed in this plague, there are many things we could have put on our doorposts. But here, God was having us do something that was an act of bravery. I mean, when you think about it, you know, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 8 that the Egyptians really venerated the lambs, and it was, uh, they were holy to the Egyptians. You know, mm. the month of April was the, the, the sign, the astrological sign is a sign of the Aries of the lamb, and, you know, this is a very special animal among the Egyptians, and God tells the Jewish people, take this, really, this God of the Egyptians. They worship many different things, but they were to take this thing that was venerated by the Egyptians tie it to their bedposts for four days. Now, imagine you would do that. You know, it'd be like going into, you know, the United States and taking an American flag and somehow, you know, tearing it up and burning it. That would be mm. seen as very provocative. So it would be seen as an, as an abomination. To oh, the yeah. I mean, th- th- it would have been uh, a world war would break out. And mm-hmm. so here the Jews would take this uh, animal, which is venerated by the Egyptians, and then tie it to the doorposts. And if anyone was going to come and say, well, what are you tying it up for? And they would say, well, in four days, we're going to kill these things. We're going to slaughter them. That's very provocative. 
And it's a statement by the Jewish people that we are rejecting the idolatry of this foreign nation. And so, in some way, this is very paradoxical that Christians have seized upon uh, the symbol in the wrong way, meaning that this, the, the Christian here worships this lamb, which was a symbol of idolatry. The Jews were told to actually take it and slaughter it. So, if we want to think about this in symbolic terms, it's not very helpful to the case for Christianity. Not at all. So, we are now, now, the number 23, Exodus 12, 21 to 27, they say Christ is our Passover, they cite 1 Corinthians 5, 7. I think we've covered that, right? <laughs> well, I would say one more thing about this, by the way. I, I, yeah. I'm always bothered by this, that the Bible says that, at least for males to participate in the Passover ritual, they have to be circumcised in the flesh. And as far as I understand, Christianity never put a lot of stock in the importance mm. of getting circumcised. I mean, you have certainly mm. many passages in the Bible where Paul especially doesn't speak positively about circumcision. Uh, there's one very you know, horrible passage where he speaks about his wish that the Jews who were circumcising themselves would slip and castrate themselves. Yeah, um, And then he says in, in one place that you know, those who take upon themselves circumcision, Jesus will be of no benefit to them. You know? So mm -hmm. it's interesting that th throughout Christian history, um, at least for you know, most of Christian history, Christians didn't see uh, getting circumcised in, in the flesh as something that was important to do. As a matter of fact, you know, they would refer to the Jews, at least in the Christian scriptures, derisively as those of the circumcision. You know, mm. the Jews are those of the circumcision. Certainly, Christians didn't see themselves that way, at least the people that followed Paul. And here, you know, what the Bible is saying is that if you want to be somehow part of this Passover ritual, circumcision is a critical prerequisite. You have to be circumcised. Mm. Very, very clear. Uh, yeah. So now before we leave the, uh, uh, the Pesach narrative of Exodus chapter 12, uh, the last one that they cite, number 24 on the list, Exodus 12, 46, not a bone of the lamb to be broken. And they say that this is a messianic prophecy fulfilled in John chapter 19, verses 31 to 36. I'd like if you could comment on, uh, in particular, verse 36 of John, because what happens is, of course, the Romans are saying, oh, it's getting late, over this, go and break the, the bones, go and break the legs, so that these guys just suffocate and die, they'll be dead. And they get to Jesus, he's already dead. So they don't break his legs, and it says, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall, shall be broken. I always found that to be peculiar, because uh, I remember uh, I had a discussion once with uh, a Christian who was telling me that uh, in order to be forgiven for your sins, you have to have a blood sacrifice. And, you know, they were challenging me, where is your blood sacrifice? Where's your blood? And, uh, I, you know, I was just joking around, but I was sort of half serious. I said, well, you know what? Last night I was making uh, my sandwich for the next day. I was preparing my lunch for the next day. And the knife slipped and I cut my finger and my finger bled on the kitchen floor. <laughs> And I said, praise the Lord. <laughs> There's been the shedding of blood, and my sins have been forgiven. Because, you know, the Christians like to point to Leviticus 17.11 and says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And I said, you know, mm -hmm. I had blood shed and my sins are forgiven. So this fellow looked at me and said, what are you talking about? You just can't make up your own religion. The Bible has laws of sacrifices and cutting your finger, you know, and having the blood drip on the kitchen floor does not really qualify as 
you know, a sacrifice. So I said, oh, so you're saying that there were laws of sacrifices and they had to be done in a certain way? He said, of course. Well, I said, well, that's going to present a problem for Christianity because sacrifices in the Bible had to be offered by a priest. You know, not Roman soldiers wouldn't have qualified. And hmm. as we men- mentioned before, sacrifices had to be without blemish. Jesus had blemishes. Sacrifices were all burnt. They had to be burnt. Jesus was not burnt. Um, sacrifices had to be brought in Leviticus 17 on the altar and not on some cross on a hill. So I said, if you go through, you know, you're telling me that cutting my finger is not uh, effective because it doesn't follow the laws of the sacrifices. I said, well, Jesus didn't really fulfill any of the laws of the sacrifices. So at this point, he looked at me sort of angrily and, you know, he said, well, you Jews, you know, you're anal retentive and you're so hung up with the letter of the law and you so that, you know, every little thing. He said, I don't understand. You know, you're blind to the truth. He said that Jesus was not a literal sacrifice. He was a spiritual sacrifice. I mean, he was saying, don't get so caught up with the details and the nitty-gritty of the laws of sacrifices. He says, you're, you're making a mistake. He says, it was not a literal sacrifice. It was, a, it was a spiritual figurative sacrifice. So I said, well, that's interesting because here the book of John tells this whole amazing story that, you know, Jesus is crucified on a Friday. You know, two other people are there with him. And, uh, you know, normally, you know, because the Romans are so sweet and righteous, they wouldn't want, God forbid, someone to be hanging on the cross over the Sabbath. So if they weren't dead before the Sabbath, they would break their legs so that they would expire quickly on the cross. But they, John says, but, but, but they got to Jesus, you know, he was already dead and they didn't have to break his legs. And he says, and therefore that fulfilled that which was spoken to the Lord by the prophet saying, not a bone of him shall be broken. So I said, it seems pretty clear that to John, at least, the fulfillment of the law literally was important. You know, so you can't have it both ways. I mean, that you either. Can't have it both ways. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's one of the conundrums that that they will face here. That is something that uh, that I want listeners to take note of and uh, really dwell on that and give it some thought because, uh, again, verse thirty six of John nineteen it says these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. If it's good enough for one part of the Torah, for one law of the Torah, why is it not good enough for the rest? I mean, putting aside the fact that Jesus is a human being, not a kosher animal, putting aside the fact that uh, after he died, he was bled. Uh, th- I mean, there is, th- there's a list as long as my arm as to what was done incorrectly and, and how very incorrectly it was. Uh, and yet here we are saying that this had to be, his bones had to be uh, preserved so that the Torah would be fulfilled. But again, I think that the real question is, is this passage a messianic prophecy? Meaning, is this passage really, when we read it, is this really God trying to tell us, you know, clearly how we'll be able to identify the Messiah? Mm-hmm. 